Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. can't hear you, Rabbi Lerner. Shalom, shalom, holy friends. We're so happy to see you all here. All of you, as always, we also have two celebrations here um, in our Zoom today. One that Dr. Gary Friedlander um, is joining our VBM board. So Gary, we're very happy about that. And also that Alex Kramer, who's here, is joining, um, has joined our VBM staff. Um, so we're very happy about both of those, both of those things. Um, so thank you both so much. And um, everyone will get to know you both better as well. Um, so let's start with a little poll here. Do you typically feel like a stranger? Number one, I am white American born and rarely feel like a stranger. Number two, I've moved cities and jobs and often feel like a stranger then in times of transition. Number three, as a minority, I feel like a stranger in society at large, but within my central community, I don't at all. Or option four, I always feel like a stranger. It's central to my identity. Let's see what folks vote. As always, the options may not perfectly represent your experience, but we hope one of those will be closer than the others. Okay, let's see what results we have. Give folks another second or two. Okay, 50% said they do not feel like a stranger. 30% said in times of transition, they do. 20% says as a minority, they feel like a stranger in society at large, but not within community. And no one here says they, it's central to their identity. Number one is, is being the perpetual stranger. Okay, very interesting. So um, to remind us where we're at here, friends, we are in class number five of 40 of Pearls of Jewish Wisdom on Kindness. We have already talked about kibud aim, honoring our parents and taking care of children um, and um, a whole bunch of other great ones. And today we are at Ahavat Hager, Loving the Stranger, which we will see has dual dimensions, at least two dimensions in Jewish thought. Here we go, friends. We are called upon to love our fellow Jew, but a more difficult task for many is the other charge to love the gear, to love the stranger. We naturally may feel closer to the former through our shared cultural, historical, or religious ties that bind us together as a nation, but the latter is more alien to our consciousness because we share less direct connections with those who may be strangers to us. However, we must keep in mind that all things that divide us come secondary to the one and most important thing that unites us with the stranger, that we are all human beings and we share human experiences. There's two types of strangers in the Jewish consciousness, the convert and the foreigner. On a biblical level, we're talking about a gear who is a foreigner in our midst. This definition of ger, while not explicitly stated in the Torah, is born out in the verse instructing us to love the ger. You must love the stranger for you were strangers in a land of Egypt. We weren't converts to Egypt. We, we didn't convert to be Egyptian. We were separate. 
we were foreigners in our identity in every sense. Um, well, almost every sense. They forced us to assimilate in some senses, of course. We are to love the gear because we ourselves were in the same situation of being a pushed down minority. Clearly, this refers to us having been strangers or foreigners in Egypt, not converts. This type of gear is akin to an immigrant, an asylee, or a refugee. It is a status most think they will never fit until they find themselves in that position. Friends, is it really so hard to imagine that America has some crisis where we are begging at the Canadian border or Mexican border to be let in? Is that so hard to imagine? On a Talmudic level, we are talking about a convert, a Gentile who has entered our community, not as fleeing from, but fleeing to, i.e. a convert into the Jewish religion and culture. Let's start with the former category, excuse me, the latter category, our exploration of the convert. The path of the Jewish convert can be strenuous and taxing on the soul. The processes that have been established over centuries have acted as both bulwark and entryway to a life of keeping the commandments and devoted to Torah learning and Jewish identity. But how are we doing as a collective Jewish community in taking care of our brothers and sisters who seek to become part of the ways of Torah and mitzvot and intertwine themselves with our fate and destiny? Right? The question is not only, are you committed to Jewish values in life? The question is also, do you know there's some people who hate Jews? Um, and are you willing to be in, you know, in that lot with us? Based upon some of the recent events emerging from the office of the chief rabbinate, ooh, the chief rabbinate in Jerusalem, one would think that the Torah's attitude towards converts would be something along the lines of exercise extreme caution with those who want to convert, or act with spite toward all those who want to join the Jewish people. You might think that's what we're doing. After all, when rabbis create lists, such as this one in Haaretz, to, um, to arbitrarily invalidate conversions performed by other rabbis, in some cases, even invalidate the converting rabbis themselves, all the while making the standards of what makes a Jewish convert legitimate, more stringent and opaque, sometimes even years to accepting the covenants of Judaism. Gary, we were talking about this yesterday, right? It is an offense to a person's soul. Sadly, shame might be the standard feeling based on the events of the current moment. What other conclusion might one come to? One may think the guiding text for the seemingly obstinate members of the chief rabbinate is the unusual one that states, proselytes are hurtful to Israel as a sore on the skin. So to be fair, that is a part of our tradition, um, such, such, a, such an idea that converts ultimately will hurt us. They'll never break with their old loyalties and eventually they will come to stab Jews in the back because they're, they're gonna be more loyal to their original community than, than their latter community. Yes, Rabbi Lerner. Okay, um, I participated in an exception to this. Um, we, five of us visited the Beit Din Gavoa in Jerusalem, and we watched a get being prepared and, and written. Okay, fine. So we're there learning all kinds of things. We were welcomed uh, with beards and without beards, uh, no names at that point. And then while they were writing the get outside, they went ahead with a case involving conversion. And someone said, well, who is this rabbi? And the Beit Din said, don't know him must be not one of ours in some place in New York. Very strangely, one of our rabbis spoke up. He said, you know, Kavod HaRav, I know this rabbi. He is a Shomer Mitzvot. Oh, in that case, we accept. Kaha, boom, <laughs> done. And, and, and I said to myself, this is how great decisions affecting a generation or two of people is handled offhandedly. <laughs> Thought I'd share. Thank you for sharing that. There's a lot to unpack there. And it is very important for us to always remember, you know, it's funny because the way that Jewish media works, perhaps, I mean, really all media, but let's just focus on Jewish media, um, is that some institutions that we aren't aligned with, sometimes we only hear the bad. We only hear the bad around certain institutions. And of course, 
the institutions we're not aligned with also do tremendous amounts of good. I mean, there, there might be some that have exceptions, uh, but by and large, I think that's true. And of course, the chief rabbinate does um, a, a ton of good things for the Jewish people, even though they do a lot of things that I object with and that alienate lots of people as well. Um, my beef is more um, with them having a monopoly on it, on the Israeli status uh, than on them having the right to operate how they want. They should have the right to operate with their own integrity as they see it. I have no beef with that. Reform communities should operate with their integrity and Haredi communities should operate with their integrity. I, my beef is with them controlling other communities and having a monopoly. And so thank you for sharing that. We should always hold that nuance. So in fact, however, in addition to the verse quoted above, we just shared, that's negative towards those converting, the Torah time and time again, vigorously commands us to love and protect converts. The great Rambam Maimonides taught us loving a convert who has come to rest under the wings of the Almighty fulfills two positive commandments. One for the convert who is also included among the fellows, meaning they're a full Jew. They're not called a convert. They're called a Jew, you convert, whom, whom we are commanded to love. And one because they are a convert. Ah, so there's a dual identity. And the Torah states, and you shall love the convert. So yes, it's true. A convert is not a convert. They're a Jew. But it's also true that they're a convert, right? And so they're duly true. And that's why there's a dual love which is more than a normal Jew. You should love a convert more than a normal Jew because they are a Jew like every other Jew and they are a convert. Even though we don't want to call them that, um, they still have that status and that way they get dual protection. Just like an immigrant who becomes a citizen, you don't stop loving them because they're an immigrant. They get the dual love. They get the love as, as, as oh, you're a fellow American. And they get the love of, oh, you also went through the hard process of being an immigrant. They get even more love. God has commanded us, can, just like a family member, a family member, they might, you might love them as a friend, and now they get the extra love of being a family. God has commanded us concerning the love of a convert, convert, just as God commanded us concerning love of God. As it is stated, you shall love your God, Lord your God. God loves converts, as the Torah notes, and God, um, and God loves converts. And so one way to love God also is, is through this love of converts. Um, admittedly, there will be certain individuals who become angry or jealous that outsiders who enter the covenant of the Jewish people are actually to be given more honor and protection, but also that overcoming these negative emotions is the spiritual work of those more secure and privileged in our communities. Just like you, you oftentimes hear, why are we helping immigrants? We've got enough veterans. We've got enough homeless people, right? We should be helping people who are our own first. That, that's usually um, the ostensibly best argument made by anti-immigrant folks. Um, they don't say, oh, we should hate immigrants. I, they're, they're usually smarter than that. I mean, some people say that. But they just say, oh, there's limited resources and we haven't tapped out what we can already give to our own seniors and our own homeless and our own veterans. Shouldn't we prioritize them more? And they're partially right. Um, a government first obligation is always to its own citizens. That's why in a war, even though there's just war ethics, you're more obligated to protect your citizens then protect the citizens of your enemy, um, the, um, the, the, the citizens of those you're at war with. Of course, no, no nation would deny that. And so the argument made by that community is correct. We are indeed as citizens more obligated to our citizens than to non-citizens. And yet there's not an infinite obligation to them at the exclusion of any obligation. At some point, there is an obligation to the outsider that comes in. And so too, Jews who say, we have a unique obligation to our fellow Jewish community. And that outweighs, you know, outweighs our obligation to those outside of our community. Yes, we have an obligation to Gentiles as well, of course, but where does that start? Where does that end? Is of course uh, a fascinating debate. We're not pure universalists who deny particularism. We don't say, oh, don't give any money to support your Jewish community. It should all go to wherever the greatest need is. We'd have no Jewish community. And so we have to be in that nuanced spot. We can't be like the anti-outsider groups who say everything for Jews, everything for citizens. And we can't be in the radical universalist camp that says, forget supporting Jewish community. It should all go to whoever needs it, right? So that nuanced group, we have to sustain our community and strengthen it. And we have to hold that consciousness towards the other as well. And, we, and that's where the fascinating debate happens of how do we think of percentages? And um, we talked a little bit about that in Sadaqah last, um, in, last week. Consider how the Midrash explains this phenomenon. Here's Bamidbar Rabbah. A king has many flocks of sheep, and one day a stag appears and joins the sheep. The, the, the stag grazes with the sheep and returns with them at night as if he were a sheep. 
When the shepherds tell the king of the stag, the king takes great pride and interest in it and ensures the shepherds treat the stag with special care. The shepherds question the king, asking, you have thousands of animals over which you take no personal interest. So why do you care so much about this one animal? The king answers them, my sheep have only one flock to join and cannot leave. But this stag has the whole world to choose from. Yet he chose my flock. He surely deserves my special attention and care. <laughs> Isn't that so beautiful? I, I think it's so cool to think about that in the animal welfare world as well. Um, it's also worth thinking about when someone joins our family. Maybe recently someone may have married in. Um, someone who's born in, uh, you know, obviously gets love because they're super cute, right? I mean, they're like a day old. Everybody wants to hug them, take care of them. But your daughter-in-law, your son-in-law, maybe we got some critiques, you know? Who's good enough for our child, you know? I can't imagine somebody marrying my kids. You know, it's like nobody can be good enough for, you know? And so there's a little bit of questioning. Ah, you know, do you belong in this clan? And so there's another space where it might emerge. It's not easy, it's not easy. Okay, so friends, elsewhere in Jewish thought, we find other sources that demonstrate that there is a moral imperative to love and protect converts. This is partially due to the fact that there are far more vulnerable and susceptible to exploitation and discrimination either by the Jewish flock or by the one they came from. Let's say, um, let's say you're, you're black and you're a black Christian and you're now becoming a black Jew. Um, that's really difficult. Um, it can be very difficult because number one, um, in, in all white or mostly Jewish spaces, of course you live in New York City, there's lots of diversity, but let's say you're in middle America. If you're in LA, there might be a lot of diversity too. That doesn't mean to say that there's no problems there as well. But once you're more in middle America um, or in spaces that have less diversity in their Jewish communities, um, people can be like, oh, how'd you get here? Where'd you come from? You know, like, what's your story? You know, um, but also if you return the black Christian family, you know, there's going to be some barriers like, uh, you know, to um, participation in Christian culture or why did you enter this Jewish space? That's, that's true in Mexican spaces as well. Now, imagine if you came from a Muslim space. I know, I know a Christian woman who converted to Islam and that didn't go so well. So she converted to Judaism, but she married in a Muslim man and our kids are Muslim. So now she's got some, so she's got to explain herself to a Christian space and to her Muslim space and to a Jewish space, right? So that's kind of a heavy, heavy load. And so, um, and so yes. And so not only are we concerned with protecting the convert in our space, but also supporting their journey to have to explain themselves in their prior space because in some Jewish spaces, we, they're encouraged to break ties from their original space. They're like a newborn baby who should disconnect from their original family. And to be sure, there are some rare cases where I would support that. If someone emerged from an anti-Semitic culture where they had no interest or a proselytizing culture where there's never an interaction where they're not gonna push converting uh, back to Christianity, then healthy distance makes sense. But bracketing those kind of uh, uh, more abusive spaces Oh, and obviously in a, a fully abusive space, sexually abusive, verbally abusive, physically abusive. But, but bracketing those more intense cases, of course, we should encourage familial ties. Okay. But concomitantly, this can also be due to the fact that converts are to be viewed as courageous spiritual journeyers who have come to contribute and overcome great obstacles to do so. Sources point to the figure of Yitro. Remember Jethro? Moshe's father-in-law as a paragon for Jewish conversion. Having spent most of his life as an idol-worshipping shepherd in Midian, Yitro later became drawn to the miracles of Torah and the God of the Israelites. And indeed, expanding on this point, there is an explication of the Talmud that God seeks out individuals with unique spiritual attributes to join the Jewish people. Now, of course, it's a machloket. It's a disagreement as to whether Yitro converts or not. According to one view, he was just very supportive. And according to another view, he is a convert. One way to explain that is, what does conversion look like in that day? It means being at Har Sinai, which we're celebrating in Shavuot in just a few weeks. If you were at Mount Sinai, that's a conversion experience, you can say. Um, so did he, did he show up at Sinai or not? Um, or is there a, a separate conversion process or not? Conversion as we know it today, of course, is anachronistic. It's a whole different <laughs> um, layer that emerges in the Talmudic era. So through this lens, every convert is especially chosen by the divine 
to actualize their potential at a later point in life. The Kabbalists explain that converts already had the sparks of a Jewish soul within them. That is to say, they didn't become someone new, they rather uncovered what they already were. They had Jewish sparks in their soul already. That of course does not mean an, an, an essentialist argument that Jews are fundamentally superior to Gentiles on an essential level. Of course, we don't believe that. That would be problematic. But it means there are diversity of souls and Jewish souls are fundamentally different, um, but not in a superior word, just in a, way, uh, uh, in a unique, different way. The holy sparks were just waiting for discovery and elevation from this person. Um, as someone who does believe in the uniqueness of souls, I think this is worth thinking about. The Bali Hatosafot, the great Tosafists, explain the burden put upon those born Jewish. Firstly, they must do all they can to be accepting of converts and prevent any suffering. And secondly, since converts tend to be particularly careful in their observance, right? In fact, these are some of the people that are most excited about Judaism because they're on this transformative experience. Those born Jewish may feel implicated since they don't reach the same level. They meet people who have just converted. They say, wow, they're so excited. I wish I was so excited, right? To be sure, Rav Sadia Goen teaches that this mitzvah does not begin when one has converted to Judaism, but once one begins their conversion journey, even before, even, even oh, I, oh, I thought that was Darth Vader for a moment, but then I saw it was just a, a, pious, <laughs> a, a, a pious Jew. Um, after looking more closely, even before, uh, but maybe Darth Vader is Jewish also, hard to say, even before one begins the delicate process, support has to be present and gentle. We don't, we don't distress those in the process only to embrace them once they've, they've rigorously jumped through all the hoops. The wounds of a trauma may heal, but the scars remain. Rather, the Torah commands for love and justice to begin at the beginning. The Sefer Achinuch reminds us that the mitzvah is not merely to love, but also to prevent gratuitous anguish and suffering. We are commanded to love the convert. In particular, we are directed not to cause converts to suffer in any way, but rather to do them good and act as charitably as they deserve. The converts are all those who have abandoned their religion and joined ours. About this group, the Torah says, love the stranger since you were strangers. So again, how are we doing in this today? There's undoubtedly much room where we can improve on both the individual, communal, and national levels. For starters, the monopoly of who is and who can be a Jew must be decentralized, I believe. After all, people's dignity and lives may be at stake. Being the leaders of a new and compassionate vanguard that welcomes converts and greets them with open arms rather than suspicion has to be the path forward for Judaism to thrive. It is a spiritual call to arms. Converts should never be used as pawns in internecine temporal battles within their transformative moments of spiritual import, ensuring that all those who seek the beauty of mitzvot become full-fledged members of the community with love and care is a holy task we can and must accomplish. While loving the convert as we have explored remains quite challenging, it can be even more challenging to love the immigrant this individual arrives at our border or at our doorsteps, not as someone who wishes to become like us. Ah, the convert, you wanna be like me? Oh, welcome. You wanna dress like us and celebrate like us and, and be a part of our Shabbat or kosher or holiday community? This individual doesn't say they wanna be like us, but wishes to maintain their full uniqueness, yet still have full acceptance. We are reminded, there shall be one law for the native and the immigrant who lives among us. What a profound teaching of the Torah, right? It doesn't say, oh, love those who want to assimilate into us, but the one who is distinct from us, there's one law for them. Nope, I want to be Muslim still. Nope, I want to be Catholic. Nope, I want to be secular. Religion is the worst, right? People, whatever they think, right? It, it could be harder to love them, right? Or imagine, um, imagine someone who... Um, wants to marry into the family. And they say, ah, oh, I, I wanna convert or I wanna be, I'm secular, but I wanna support my spouse's Jewish journey. You know, we say, oh, well, welcome. We're so glad you're gonna support our tradition. Someone who marries in and they say, oh, actually like I wanna raise my kids Christian. Um, you know, that, might, that's, that feels more difficult to, a, to a, a family that loves their Judaism. So it's, um, it's we, we can experience this on a national level and on a Jewish level. On Pesach, 
Jews celebrate not only the liberation of the Hebrew slaves from oppression and cruelty, but also the blessings that, that free movement ordained to a nation seeking to form an identity. One could argue that the Pesach story is primarily about embracing an ethical consciousness of the stranger. Yet an even more pertinent and contemporary read is that Passover is about cultivating the crucial emotion of empathy, especially when it comes to seeing life through the eyes of the immigrant, the asylum seeker, the refugee, the convert. As a people who have suffered oppression, not only in biblical times, but throughout our history, we are consistently instructed not to attack immigrants with hateful rhetoric, precisely because we have felt this pain. Our forefather, Abraham, was commanded to become an immigrant. Elsewhere in the Torah, there are positive commandments to love the foreigner in our midst and negative commandments against oppressing or perverting justice for them in any way. Elaborating on that prohibition, the Midrash teaches regarding the verse we quoted earlier, you shall not wrong or oppress the stranger for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not wrong with words and you shall not oppress financially. Adding on to this, our sages taught that one who embarrasses another in public is as if they've committed murder. We cannot single out and oppress an individual with words or actions based on who they are or where they have come from. To do so would cause untold physical and emotional harm. The sages of the Talmud supported the right to immigrate and move around freely. One who has not made good in one place and fails to move to try their luck in some other place has only themselves to complain about. One cannot remain stuck in an, in an underprivileged region. The rabbis tell us it is a clear dead end for oneself and one's family. We not only owe immigrants their inherent and basic human rights, we also have specific religious obligations to go above and beyond to protect them from harm, as proven by the disproportionate number of times and number of ways the Torah instructs us to be ethically mindful towards this population. Our responsibility to the immigrant, or perhaps more aptly, the heroic journeyer, requires that we honor the image of God in all people. Jewish tradition reminds us not to become like the land of Sodom, the paradigmatic evil society described in the book of Genesis, which is said to have been cruel to strangers in their midst. They issued a proclamation of Sodom saying, anyone who strengthens the hand of the poor and the needy and the stranger with a loaf of bread shall be burnt by fire. The foremost crime of Sodom was that they did not sustain the needs of the stranger passing through their lands. Further, we're instructed, not, do not despise the Edomite, for he is your brother. Do not despise the Egyptian, for you were sojourners in his land. This verse goes even one step further than the general mitzvah to love the ger, as here we are instructed not to hate even those who oppressed and maltreated us. It seems almost irrational for the Torah to mandate that a Jew may not hate an Egyptian, particularly considering that the Torah was given to the very generation that had been enslaved in Egypt. It's hard to imagine. Imagine, I mean, it's different, but similar, that, that right after being liberated from Nazis, right, someone came and said, you should love the Nazis. You should love the Nazis. What? what are you talking about, love the Nazis? I, I don't want to talk to them, I want to see them, and I have the right to hate them. What do you mean love? So this is so to us it might feel obvious. Love the Egyptian, love, love even the love even the oppressor, right? Um, and yet it's not so obvious, it's not so easy. And what does it mean to love the stranger? What if the stranger hates you? This is we know statistically there are people from Central America who are anti-Semitic. It's uh, disproportionately anti-Semitic. There are people from Muslim countries who emerge with deep anti-Semitism. What do you mean, what do you mean love them? They hate me, right? Want me to love them? Nevertheless, the Torah mandate does indeed go this far. How much more so than that we must be sure not to mistreat and even welcome immigrants and asylum seekers who neither they nor their people have done us any, any harm or, or may hold beliefs that we strongly disagree with time and again. And we're moving towards a conclusion here in just a minute where I wanna hear from you. Time and again, Jewish tradition tells us that God is the owner of all the land. From this teaching, we come to understand that Jewish ethics apply to all people, not simply to those born in a given place or holding a certain ideology. Rav Hirsch, elaborating on the meaning of never turning another person away from comfort or refuge, explaining that there are no preconditions for receiving basic rights other than being human, said, 
The absolute equality in the eyes of the law between the native and the foreigner forms the very basic foundation of Jewish jurisdiction. Rav Soloveitchik, who wrote and spoke so eloquently on the intersection between traditional Jewish thought and contemporary attitudes, commented on the, note, on the notion that those who journey to foreign lands to seek freedom often become the most ardent and patriotic. When the need arises, the nomad stands up and fights for his freedom, he writes, and many a time proves superior in battle to the settled king. The history and contributions of diaspora Jewry to the societies in which they call home are a living testament to that principle. We should regard the history of all immigrants to be such. Perhaps it was Emmanuel Levinas, the French Talmudist and arguably the foremost philosopher of Jewish ethics in the 20th century who said it best. The respect for the stranger and the sanctification of the name of the eternal are strangely equivalent. As Jews, our ancestors have been eternal immigrants from Abraham to Ellis Island. They were my heroes, as are the modern immigrants striving to survive and thrive in a challenging world. The prophetic day will come when our society sees the immigrants among us not as scoundrels, but as heroes who were willing to make dangerous and uncertain treks from home, learn new languages and cultural lexicons, all to support themselves and their families. We can indeed, we must do all to power in our power to hasten the realization of that day. So friends, I wanna pause here. And as I open it up, I wanna remind us that this is not a social justice series, but a kindness series. There is of course some overlap, but here we are not looking at systemic justice issues as we sometimes and often do. Um, we are looking at interpersonal kindness. How do we as individuals and as a community treat the convert? How do we as individuals and a community treat um, the foreigner as they enter our spaces? So I would love it to open it up for your questions and thoughts. Uh, hi, Steve, go for it. Hi. Uh, this might be a weak analogy, and, and so forgive me at first, but I kind of look at Judaism's admonition to love the stranger as I look at a diving board. And the diving board doesn't guarantee that you're going to make a great dive, but it opens up the possibilities and probabilities and increases the chance of success. That's kind of the end of my analogy, but number two, if I might. Oh, just to um, make sure I understand your first comment first, Steve. So what I hear you saying is that um, immigrants have to do their own really hard work to, to make it, to learn language, to get a job, to do all that stuff. But our job is, um, is to know that you can dive a lot better if you have a diving board. And so we have to set the, the, the foundation for them to be able to excel. Is that kind of what you're saying there? Yeah, perfect, perfect, okay, perfect. Great. Awesome, thank you for that first point. And the second point is that I think there has to be some commonality to, to um, increase the chance of our successfully loving the stranger. For instance, if I went down to a tent city, the 100,000 tents in LA or the growing number here, I would find it very difficult to love the stranger. However, on the pickleball court, I don't mean to be funny about that, there is a commonality. We're there for one purpose, to make friends and to have fun. And, and so th there has to be some mutual thing that we're aspiring to, uh, to, to advance the cause of loving the stranger. I love it, Steve. Now, I, I, I'm gonna give y'all, I'm gonna give y'all access to my billion dollar idea. Ready for the access to my billion dollar idea? Based on what Steve just said. Um, if one day I met a major philanthropist, I would wanna launch this. And I know I'm a naive dreamer, so you can all shake your heads when I say it. <clears throat> Here is the pathway to Israeli-Palestinian peace. Ready for it? A basketball league, a competitive basketball league where every team has to be made up half of Palestinians and half of Israeli Jews that are on the same team together, competing with other teams that are half and half. Once you play together on a team, right? 
the bonding can be so deep, deep on the playing field that all of a sudden the us and them falls away, right? And, and we know from psychology studies and group dynamics and sociology that when we reshift the us and them, the stranger becomes part of us, um, uh, that our identity shifts and our ethical commitments shift. shift and um, I think the power of sports could do that. Now, I won't be so naive to say that a trophy is gonna get us there. But what if there's a monetary prize? In these basketball leagues, the teams get a monetary prize. There's a stake in the game. So thank you for that pickleball point because Steve is raising the important point. How do you turn a stranger into someone familiar? And the answer is not as simple as, oh, go donate money to them or go give them something they need. Okay, great, you help them, but to love them? Sometimes you have to experience yourself on the same team as them, that your fate is tied up in some way. How do we do that? Great, yes, Rabbi Lur, over, over to you. You're on mute still. Unmute, okay. It's been done. Uh, my granddaughter participated in Israel with such a project. It's called MEET, okay from the initials M-I-T, but they pronounce it MEET. It's a project that comes out of, I think, the Technion, where she was one of, I, I think, 30 or 40 teenagers for two years, two summers, working in computers. All right, not, not new, but... 50% had to be boys and 50% had to be girls. 50% had to be Israelis. 50% had to be Arab, Christians, or Muslim. Ah, very the, nice. Oh, so forget my billion dollar idea. Just go invest in that one. Thank you. That's great. And, <laughs> and well, in part, I think my son helped set it up many years ago when he went oh, to the tech field, but neither here nor there. They loved it, but it led to her first real social, and I hope she forgives me if she ever hears about this, her first real social conflict. She said, how can I go into the army if I might have to fight the families of these, my friends, with whom we've been involved in entrepreneurial projects and teams? Oops. Now, she did go. She did go in. Thank you. But it was a long thinking through. Yeah, it's very interesting. And so we might have thought globally that collaborations would be enough to build bridges um, among nations of, of, of strangers. Unfortunately, COVID didn't show us that. We might have thought that global health collaborations around containing a spreading pandemic would actually bring more peace in the world and deepen those collaborations. Unfortunately, um, that doesn't seem to always have been the case. Maybe someone knows a case study from the last few years where particular nations actually got closer. I know with Israeli-Palestinian relations, it did not help so much. Uh, maybe with Indian-Pakistani Pakistani relations, it may have helped. Um, but I, I know China-US relations, it hurt even further for, for many reasons um, and, and, and so on. And so it used to be that we've had a simple saying that you know, was, was taught well before Thomas Friedman, um, the journalist, but he was the one who said it most clearly that any two, country, that any two countries that both have McDonald's don't go to war with each other. Because once your economies are intertwined, you don't fight each other. It's all about the money. But that's uh, not true anymore. How I did hear yesterday that McDonald's has decided they're pulling out of Russia. And so maybe that's, maybe they're pulling out to prove Thomas Friedman is right or something, you know, so. <laughs> okay, all right, who, who, else is, uh, who else wants to jump in here? Lauren has a question in the chat. Oh, good. Oh, 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 I didn't, I missed it. Sorry. Um, I don't, uh, I don't see it. Oh yeah, here it is. Sorry. How should we treat someone who goes through a conversion only to marry a Jew, but has no interest or belief in Judaism? Okay. Thank you for asking that. I don't believe we should convert someone who doesn't have any interest or belief in Judaism. I think we should respect them as a Gentile. Um, and I, I acknowledge their right and opportunity to remain a Gentile. I think someone who is converting primarily for marriage, but secondarily has an interest or belief is a great person to bring, uh, to bring closer. Um, and so, um, 
But I don't think that we should, I think the idea of conversion is reserved for those who want to be Jewish um, and have an interest and belief in that. And so um, uh, the idea of converting solely for marriage, I think is, uh, is, is not so great. Um, uh, primarily for marriage, I'm, in an, I'm a little bit of an anomaly where I think is good and okay, um, as long as there's that secondary bit as, there as well. Um, but I'm curious if other people have different views on that from me. Hi, Eileen. Go ahead, Eileen. Um, I am of a generation that grew up in a temple where I never saw a convert. I find it amazing today that there is such a large number of um, people who have converted because this is just so strange to my early um, activities in temple. So can you speak to why we find so many more people converting? Okay, so thank you for asking that. Yes, there's a lot to say there, but let me condense it to three points, I think. Um, the first is, Eileen, um, you associate with the reform community, right? And the reform community, um, for two reasons, has been extremely um, pro-conversion. The first reason is um, that the reform community prides itself on, um, as perhaps even the most central value in the reform community, inclusiveness and welcoming. Now, now as opposed to an, auth an Orthodox community, it prides itself first and foremost on authenticity. We are Torah true. We are loyal to the tradition. That's, that's what we pride ourselves most on. Reform doesn't say that. We're most authentic to the tradition. They say we're most committed to welcoming, right? Now, th those two don't have to be at odds with each other. It's just two different values. We can appreciate both the Orthodox commitment to authenticity, the Reform commitment to welcoming, and everything in between. Um, and so that's the first, is that that's become central to Reform Judaism in re recent decades. And in the, in the most recent years, they even have embraced a, a, an originally Christian phrase of, of um, uh, uh, radical inclusion, uh, which churches were using, um, and that some reform synagogues have started using, rat, radam, being radically welcoming. This word radical, people love this word radical, you know, we're radically welcome, radically. So, so, so that's the first reason. The second is existential. The reform community would be dead if it hadn't done two moves. One, embrace patrilineal descent, um, saying that, that not only the, the, the halakha, um, is true that that um, children of, of Jewish women are Jews, but also this new innovation, which they would say is not an innovation, but a return to the biblical Judaism um, before Talmudic Judaism, um, that that children of, of Jewish fathers um, are also Jewish. Um, and not only the embrace of patrilineal descent, but also the embrace, which of course is after when you were a child in the reform movement, um, and also this uh, embrace of converts. Uh, to the extent that they have a very ironed out program, it's not like an orthodox process where you need to actually grow in your meets vote and achieve a level of knowledge to convert in. It's like you go through a year of learning and you're in. Um, there's not going to be a, a total quiz on your theology or if you actually learned Hebrew or committed to these meets vote. You went through the learning program, you're in. Um, and so that's the second bit. It's a mikvah. Yeah, yeah, right. And 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 the mikvah. And of course, some reform Jews rabbis will do it even without a mikvah, or maybe even without even without a circumcision. Um, there are some reform rabbis who will do that as well. And so very different than um, traditional approaches. So that's, so that's the first two points there. But it's not only true of the reform movement, of all the movements, conversion is on the, on, on the, on the up and up. And that is because it's great to be a Jew. It's great to be a Jew. And in the olden days, that wasn't true. It, to be a Jew meant, um, you were outcast, you were discriminated against, you were maybe even killed by pogroms and crusades and Shoah and the like. You lived with trauma um, and you, um, and there was a whole bunch of, you know, of, of stigmas and the like. And so today, um, Jews have never had it better. It's true, there's some challenges to be a Jew today, but Jews have never had it better. We have a thriving state of Israel. We have a thriving North American Jewish communities. Um, uh, Jewish culture is at like a peak in terms of um, uh, Jewish humor and Jewish theater and you know, Yiddish revival and Jewish academic studies. 
it's great to be a Jew. Who wouldn't want to be a part of it? You know what I'm saying? And so, yeah, so that's the third thing I would say. Thank you, Eileen. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Great. Who else wants to jump in? Yes, back to Rabbi Lerner. Yes. Trying to be trying to be careful so I don't overload. Two other factors I discovered in, in all of my conversion education, which was rather tough. Uh, I loved the people, but I made sure that they could fit into any synagogue, reform, conservative, or orthodox in terms of skills and awarenesses. The first is there are a lot of Christians today who don't accept Christianity. They've, they've become so uh, broad in their thinking that they're beginning to see problems and inconsistencies and contradictions and they're looking now for a tradition that doesn't have that problem. <laughs> well, I don't know how to tell them that we have a few fights in the Jewish community too, but they, they admire our willingness to ask questions and encourage question asking. The second is, and, and I'll be even briefer, some of them have Jewish backgrounds of which they're not even aware. I discovered some of those. They were the descendants of Moranos. And some, yes, had a grandparent or a great-grandparent who was Jewish. And that was one of my uh, gayrim who said, can I wear my grandfather's talit at the ceremony? Never told me that the grandfather was an Orthodox chazan who married out and left his talit for someone in the faith. Go figure. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Just a quick word on your, on your first comment. Um, it, it's true that um, traditionally there's been a fundamentally di fundamental difference between Jews and Christians in this regard, in that if a Jew comes and says, oh, Rabbi, I'm an atheist and I don't wanna learn Torah and I don't believe in any of this stuff. I say, Yashikoach, you're still a Jew. You know, you're, you're, call yourself a cultural Jew, not a religious Jew. Great job. You know, welcome. You know, come come for Shabbos. You know, um, if, if I go to church and I say, um, uh, pastor, I'm an atheist. You know, I'm not interested in prayer. I don't believe in, I don't want a Bible study. You know, you, you wouldn't say, oh, great. Welcome. You're a cultural, you're a cultural Christian. You know, I, because central to Christianity is, most central to Christianity is, Faith. The belief in God. The, the, the faith is much more central in Christianity than it is in Judaism. In Judaism, faith is very decentralized. Now, to be sure, what that Christian would likely call themselves is spiritual but not religious, right? You rarely hear the phrase culturally Christian. To be sure, there is, there is a real category of Americans who are culturally Christian. They say, I have doubts of this faith or even reject it, but I'm interested in having a Christmas tree. And I go to my mother's Easter you know, egg hunt and I, um, you know, um, feel my, most of my friends are Christian, you know, so the, the, the category of cultural Christians exists just like the category of cultural Jews exist. Um, and, um, but I think they would normally call themselves spiritually not religious, as opposed to a Jew who's going to reject tenets of faith and still, but not to put you on the spot, but we do have one of our dear friends here who is Christian. And I, I wonder if she has any different perspectives on this issue than what have been shared. She doesn't have to share, but Pam, if you want to. Um, I think you're pretty spot on on um, some things that I've seen go on with my friends in college. Um, it's kind of like my faith and I am having a bit of a crisis of faith at the moment. So um, a lot of what all of you have said rings true. I do know some who are going into um, like post Christian ministry at a college themselves. And one guy in particular had declared he was atheist and everyone kind of turned away from him. And I was one of the only to reach out because I did not grow up in the faith. I've grown up around many faiths. My family is Sikh. Um, they are still figuring all of this out with me. And um, he was horrified that every one of his friends, you know, just turned away from him when he was having a really hard moment. And he asked me why I was so non-judgmental about it. And I said, well, you're still a human being. You're still a good person. Just because you don't want to go and teach people about Christianity and you think God might not exist in this moment doesn't make you any less worthwhile of a friend. And I would hope that that's the kind of people 
people of faith would reach out to you because they're the people that need you the most. Um, so yeah, you're, you're not wrong in your understanding, but I would say that that's not necessarily every person, right? I'm sitting here talking to you. And so I wouldn't say every single person from a certain religion acts a certain way. It's more how they were raised and, and the people they surround themselves with. So because I was with so many different people of faith, that one faith doesn't supersede how I feel about God and being a good human and being good to others. Um, and that's where I am struggling right now, given all the things happening in our country with the abortion debate and with policies and politics and um, even having served all this time in a, in a Jewish nonprofit, I've gotten to expand what I know about even just this religion. And I'm learning that maybe some of what worked for me in my 20s um, when I was going through a tough time and had just lost a family member and was serving in youth ministry and, and that like held me together doesn't necessarily apply for this next part of my life where I am not just that cookie cutter person anymore. Wow. Pam, thank you for, for sharing your, that personal um, side of your journey right now, which is uh, honorable and noble to make yourself vulnerable in sharing that. And welcome to the club of crisis of faiths. Every day around 11 o'clock, I hit my crisis of faith. Uh, so it's about a daily, uh, about a daily uh, <laughs> journey for me as well. Uh, so thank you for that. I also wanna use this opportunity to continue to celebrate and thank our dear friend, Pam, as um, she's done so much great work um, and she's been you know, managing and facilitating this class experience. And next week is her last week at VBM, which we're sad about. And, and next Tuesday, will um, Alex will be um, managing this class with, oh, Pam will be here for her last session um, to, you know, to kind of back her up. Um, but we do want to use that opportunity because Pam was, you know, help, helping make these slides and managing this and getting communication. So, so much Where of this is going. Oh, well. <laughs> I haven't decided yet, but I will let you know when I do. We will keep you posted on where Pam goes next. Um, only good things. Okay, thank you. So good. Over to Dr. Vicki Cabot and then over to Gary. Ted, and thank you, Pam, for sharing. And we'll miss you. Um, I just wanted to say two things. One was in the very beginning when you made the, you made the distinction between kindness and between social action. Mm. And I think that's a really, it, it, it's staying with me. And I think it's a really elemental thought and something to keep in mind because the idea of an, any kind of an act of kindness towards anybody, but particularly to somebody who may be different than us or a stranger in any way, shape or form, I like to believe is gonna move us a little bit closer to having more goodness in the world. Um, social action becomes another whole thing, but in terms of each of us as individuals, for me as an individual, that's how I like to think of it. The second thing I wanted to say was that um, your conversation about, first of all, I think there's a difference between welcoming strangers and conversion. I think we're having a very broad conversation here, but in terms of conversion and in that, in that and then within the context of relationships, I feel like the reform movement, and I don't currently belong to um, a reform, I'm not affiliated with a reform congregation right now, but I was raised in one. Um, they're doing an unbelievable job with their outreach. Um, as a parent of a couple of intermarried kids, I can see how they make space for those who are coming with from another uh, religion, you know, faith tradition, and are not looking to convert to Judaism. Um, they're very respectful. They want to learn more, but they're welcomed. Um, and the one example I'll give you that I just, I, I think it's hysterical really in some ways is my daughter is married to a man who is Hindu, which is Hindu, it's Indian. And uh, on Yom Kippur, when uh, they read all the, at the Yiska service, they read all the, uh, honor all of the people that have passed or whatever. They always mention her, put her father-in-law in there who has a distinctively mm -hmm. Indian name, but it's very meaningful to my daughter, mm -hmm. um, as well as I'd like to think of her husband, because there's, there's a small gesture of inclusion there. Mm. And, and her children have two parents. They have a Jewish mother. They were raised Jewish, but mm. they have a whole other, they have a parentage on the other side as well. So that's all. Beautiful. Thank you for that. And I, and I would encourage us to think about, I know this may sound controversial to some, but I hope not, um, that to think of um, Gentiles and interfaith marriages as part of the Jewish community, an important part of the Jewish community. That's to say, they're not Jews. If they chose not to convert, 
they just married into a They are still a part of our community and we should embrace them as part of our community. Obviously, in some way, in some communities, they'll do that differently than others. Um, but I think things like what, what, what Vicky's sharing there is very powerful and very important. Just like if a Jew married a Christian and they showed up at church with their Christian spouse, we would want them to be welcomed and supported and celebrated as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Gary, yeah, Gary. And then over to Julie after. There we go. I, I want to go back to uh, uh, welcoming the stranger. You mentioned uh, about uh, immigrants that come to this country, and I'm only a second generation American, so both sets of grandparents were were from, from Eastern Europe. But my father had was one of six brothers, and you know, five of the six were in World War II. And uh, historically, you know, there's been Jews that have supported this country from, in, uh, uh, you know, from independence going forward. Uh, and I just find it uh, very difficult that we still deal with anti-Semitism. Uh, and there are others, immigrants that have fought uh, in American wars time and time again, but yet we, we want to discriminate them. And without them, you know, we wouldn't... Uh, be where we're at, at at today. So it's okay to go on the battle lines and, and give up your life, but it's not okay to be accepted as a whole human being uh, uh, in this country. And that has always has always boggled my mind. And, and we see what's going on here now uh, in in the country. Very powerful. That was thank my you, Gary. Yeah, thank you so much. I also like donuts. Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love that. You're, Gary's got the best shirts. Okay, Julia, over to you. Nothing against the rest of your shirts. I'm not judging your shirts. They're great shirts. I just like I just like Gary's shirt today. Okay, yeah, uh, Julia, go ahead. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, Rabbi Lerner, cool, that's cool. Uh, Julia, go ahead. Oh, I don't know if, if Rabbi Lerner had something to say. Showing the badge, did you wanna say something about the badge? My father's dog tags, uh, um, of which he was very proud. And what's the uh, symbol on it? It does not say Jewish. It says H, Hebrew. We've come a long way, baby. Thank you. Okay, hi, Julia. Thank you. I don't think I have anything particularly intelligent to add, but I, I will definitely keep this in mind. I think the interesting part, more interesting for will come like when the applications of this become challenging. Um, and I can't think of any personal situations right now uh, where that will come up, but I, I you know, when, when, when meeting people, when meeting strangers who, who are hateful, I guess it is, it is relevant. How, how do we, how do we interact both in a, like, we have to remember to protect ourselves. Uh, we also have to remember to love the stranger, welcome the stranger, um, and finding the balancing those two and not falling into like a, a, a um, like tribal, er, others are bad. Um, insiders are good nature. I think um, whether it's we're talking along political lines, which I have been guilty of falling yeah. into that camp. Um, I think it's it's just an interesting idea about how we view ourselves and others. Thank you, thank you. I, and it is worth us challenging ourselves as we conclude here because it might feel obvious and easy. Oh, love this convert, love the stranger, you know. But there are some real dilemmas sometimes. Um, if we have examined our own lives, I'm sure we would all find many. And we don't want to dilute Judaism. We wouldn't want for a, a foreign invasion of, of values to overtake what actually drives our community, so to speak, to kind of over, you know, make it overly, overly dramatic. Um, we, we would want people to take, who entered our Jewish community to, to, to cherish our most beloved values and not come in to undermine them. So too, we want um, whatever we understand the American culture to be the ethos of this country, we want to maintain that. And so we, we don't have to, we're not anti-immigrant or anti-convert for wanting to maintain the, an authentic Judaism, maintain the, the dimensions of American culture that we cherish. We can be welcoming and embracing and loving and care about maintaining the beauty of which we have, just like um, we wanna maintain the beauty of our families and our homes, so too on a, on a collective level. So I hope we can all continue to think about not only this as a system, but how we can incorporate acts of kindness in our lives to this unique, these unique populations as we see them in our community and in our home and in the world at large. Wishing everyone a beautiful day. And before I let you go, I'm gonna give you a little heads up on our topic of next week. Um, session number six, 
is kivurat hametim, burying the dead. The mitzvah of kindness as it pertains to care for um, those who have deceased. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.